In honor of episode 180, we're going to do this as moderate Republicans. Both sides. Well, you know, I'm not really up on those social issues. You know. But I, I am like... a conservative in terms of the economics. Mm-hmm. When I say, <laughs> say economics, I mean Negroes and abortion. Right. Yes. <laughs> what? Never mind. No one's talking about the home mortgage interest deduction. No. Writing off your golf game as a business expense. Or the deficit coming down. <laughs> No, no one's talking about the de- how no. the act deficit is actually coming down. It actually okay. is. You can listen to The Professional Left on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our website at professionalleft.blogspot.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There's a PayPal button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. This is the podcast for May 17th, 2013. It's not safe for work. Recorded live from just outside the Our Lady of Perpetual Outrage, Fish Fry and Gun Auction, it's The Professional Left with Drift Glass and Blue Gal. And I heard on the radio this morning that there is actually a Catholic church doing a fundraiser, fish fry, pork roast, and auctioning off an AR-15. Well, you know, that's the three basic food groups, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) My chin hit the floor so fast. (laughs) Welcome to gun country, honey. Yeah. Yeah, well, you you were talking about that, that there was an article in one of the free papers about how to spend spring break hunting. Yeah. And, you know, that's great. If if you're into hunting and want to do things safely and lock up your guns when you're done and you've got a license to hunt, hey. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Go right ahead. It is not, you know, it is no measure of your... I don't your... think churches should auction off guns. I'm just no. going to put that out there. No. We also have some corrections from last week's episode. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, I'm supposed to call her Ayn Rand. I just refuse to do that. She's not worthy of a special pronunciation of her name. I think yes. that's affected. I'm going to call her Anne. Ayn Rand. Okay. Care. I don't yeah. care. Don't care. <laughs> And uh, it turns out Arizona does not have a lieutenant governor. They have a secretary of state, which is how Jan Brewer got to be governor in the first place. And finally, there are lots of progressives in Texas. Yes, there are. Um, Sadly, they're no longer in the majority. Yeah. And And that may change. Well, it may. But no more Ann Richards governor, you know. Yeah, no. But we'll get get there. Oh, yeah. No, it's Molly Ivins. I'm a massive fan of Molly Ivins. And we both are. And yep. both big fan of the the late Ann Richards. The both the late both great ladies are now no longer with us. Uh, both hail from Texas. I have relatives who hail from Texas. It's a fine state. And it Ann just Richards' has... daughter is in charge of Planned Parenthood. That's right. That's right. So nothing. What Texas does well, it does well. But yeah. it has way too many crazy idiots to uh, in weighing it down. So maybe I maybe sorry a... about those uh, mis misquotes and problems last week. Maybe it needs to be two states. <laughs> Maybe an East and a West Maybe Texas. Austin or North. and the rest of the yeah, state yeah. is what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was Chicago. We always used to kid around that Chicago should reincorporate as part of Wisconsin. Oh. And uh, that would solve an awful lot of a problems. Lot of, a lot of people down here in southern Illinois would love it if yeah. Chicago got annexed by some other state. But then all the money would go away, too. Well, there's the problem. So uh, we want to say hey and a high five to Angelina Jolie this week. We do. For coming out with her story of elective breast removal over her genetic predisposition to breast cancer. Uh-huh. And it became very personal to me the next day. Yeah, literally. <laughs> literally. Uh, 
I have known for a few weeks that my sister, who we call Red here on the podcast, who she has red hair, she has breast cancer and is actually this morning having a mastectomy. And uh, as we record this, and uh, so yesterday I was in the dentist's office and my phone rang and uh, my other sister, I only have two sisters and no brothers, and my other sister called and left me a message to say that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. So both of my sisters, my only two siblings, both of them had breast cancer. Uh, I have been uh, the recipient of a mammogram in the past six weeks, which came across as negative. So I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about genetic testing and so forth, and I'm doing a little bit of research into that and discovering that uh, at this point they are likely to do genetic testing on the person with breast cancer first, which makes, makes sense. Makes, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So once they've done that with my sisters, I'll have more information about my situation and what steps to take. But mm-hmm. Uh, we're facing one day at a time and grateful for every day. And my sisters mm-hmm. are two strong, amazing women and have and f- wonderful attitudes. And, and fuck cancer. Fuck cancer. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, and and we, we've had you know a number of discussions because it trickles down to the children. Yeah. And yeah. questions of mortality and parenthood and... What's going on with, you know, I mean, you, the youngest child's first question was about. Oh, yeah. What about my sister's child? What happens? Is to she going to go into foster care? Yeah. Makes, <laughs> and I said, no, there's makes a perfect sense. Quite a network sense. of people who are going to want to snatch up mm-hmm. every there's a network of people to care. for, So that's fine. And I, I, I am struck because I get to be a slightly removed from this in terms of time. This is we didn't get this call this morning. Right. Um, and because I'm I'm a dorky guy, <laughs> so I'm always looking for a way to fix problems, you know. And it, it really, I got to get, I got have to put a leash on sometimes to just listen, shut up and listen. Which you know, being a guy takes about fifty years of training to learn how to do. But I will say that I am delighted to live in a time, regardless of all the awful things that we're going to talk about, all the terrible headlines, all the sliding back towards the dark ages, where the sentence getting yourself genetically tested can just roll off the tongue as if it's nothing. Yeah. Not not like it costs nothing, but as if because it's now possible to do that. Well, and I'm very grateful that there's just this huge network of breast cancer survivors out there who open right up when you talk to them about your yeah. crisis, the crisis that I faced yesterday. Um, I mean, the, the one that stunned me this morning was the florist. I ordered flowers for my sister. And the, they had to call me back because she was apparently in surgery and she was under a different name and it was or they didn't know quite how to spell her last name and so forth. And they were just having a hard time finding out where to deliver the flowers. And I said, well, here's what's happening with her. And I don't even know if she'd been assigned a room number, et cetera. And after I said that, the florist on the phone said to me, I'm a breast cancer survivor and I had a mastectomy in 19... 19- no, 2004, excuse me. And she said, you know, she'll survive this and it'll it'll work out and uh, I'll be thinking about her. And there's just this tremendously strong, fierce sisterhood of survivors that just mm-hmm. come to the plate when it's you need that kind of help. And I think you and I know about 30 women yeah. in my church who have yeah. survived various stages of breast cancer. And they are so active. They have 
last year raised over $27,000 for the American Cancer Society. They had a uh, a rummage sale that our daughters were very involved in, pricing yes. things and running things around, and they raised over six grand for American Cancer Society. And those are the folks that drive people to their chemo appointments, you yeah. know, and drive them home. So this is the on the provide ground meals, make sure there's fruit in the refrigerator, and that sort of real hands-on direct care. And or knit amazing, them, amazing people. Knit them shawls. Or knit them shawls to keep them warm during chemo, which is what I do. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a battle, but it's also uh, a sisterhood of warriors against this terrible disease. So, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk a little bit later about the art wars of the '90s, '80s, yes, and '90s. But remind me when we get there, because you know that's your job, honey. Remind yes, me of yes, stuff, dear. Yes, remind me of what I need to remember when I'm talking. Just one of the things that we talked about yesterday when we were over lunch, we were talking about this podcast. What are we going to talk about and stuff? Is how much. AIDS and the denial, the refusal to publicly acknowledge it existed or the or the insistence on the part of the religious right that it was some sort of retribution from God for being an evil person, for having a bad life, Mm -hmm. how much that influenced art Mm -hmm. and how the kind of art that was being done, the kind of very incendiary, in your face, aggressive arts from 80s and 90s that had a direct effect and and sort of you're talking about that now. So go right ahead. Uh, well, I, no, I just wanted to contrast that with the kind of um, breast cancer survivor network. You know, one of the things that happened with breast cancer is that white men in power like Gerald Ford and Nelson Rockefeller had wives who had breast cancer. Uh-huh. And it, so when that happens, it become, when it becomes personal to you. Oh, now it's a thing. Now yeah. it's a thing. And yeah. it's a thing where we can raise money and it's a thing where we can have parties to raise money mm-hmm. and awareness and so forth. And it's not it couldn't possibly be. Uh, I mean, even alcoholism all of a sudden became a disease when Betty Ford had it. And yep. not I'm not saying that Betty Ford wasn't an amazingly brave, forthright, go get them woman. She really did a lot of great things for women in, the, mm-hmm. in that regard. But it makes a difference when the powerful are afflicted with something. It absolutely All does. of a sudden, whether uh-huh. it's airplanes or <laughs> on the tarmac or breast cancer or whatever it is, all of a sudden people pay attention to it. Well, the, the whole, and this is where I'm going to get a little bit science fiction-y, but in a nice way. <laughs> um, Edgar Allan Poe, the, the Mask of the Red Death, the whole plot of the Mask of the Red Death, you know, Poe had this great fear of blood and bloodborne diseases because he'd seen so many people in his family die of it, including his his very young wife, was the prince and all the rich people in the kingdom walling themselves off from the plague mm-hmm. and stocking the palace in such a way that they wouldn't have to deal with it. While, while the plague raged outside and killed off the poor and the unfortunate, they would be fine. And they partied inside the palace. And the whole story is of the Red Death, the Red Death gets inside and there was there was no stopping it and and they all, and it killed them all there was no hiding from it and the, the story is allegorical the story is about a lot of things and it's got that poe kind of living dream quality to it um but uh, i remember how the story ends it's it, i believe the quote is the despairing the despairing posture of their fall where you know the red death stood above everyone else it won because precisely because um, it was something that that society attempted to wall off and, and ignore. The last line of the red, Mask of the Red Death, and darkness, decay, and the Red Death held illimitable dominion over all. Oh, yeah. If you don't 
act together, it'll get you. It'll come for you eventually. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. Uh, eventually, the bad things of the world will visit you. And if you spend all of your time building an ideology that says it's them and us, it's the worthy and the unworthy, it's the unwashed and the washed, it's the touchable mm-hmm. and the untouchable, um, and that all the bad things in society, we can just sequester off in this corner over here. And we won't have to deal with them because they're not like us. They're not our same species. Eventually, when it happens, when it, when it breaches the wall, uh, you will have not acted in your own rational self-interest by getting together as a team, team human, and <laughs> trying to come up with a solution to the common problems of being human. Yeah, and I think that that's what I wanted to bring up in our Bible Bitch segment today, uh-huh. which is a section from Micah. And I thought about this today. I came across it and I thought... Can I just, for a minute, interrupt you and say how much I love you? Yes, you may. You know, that reminds me of a segment from Micah. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of an Edgar Allan Poe story. And we both rush off to look it up. And by God, it it actually does. So rock and roll, baby. Well, and people like Dick Cheney and Jeffrey Skilling and ExxonMobil are perfectly happy to let the Bible win the South for them. And so I, I, want, I want you to hear what the Bible says to people like that. Uh, God has already made it plain how to live, what to do. What God is looking for in men and women is quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love and don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Listen, all of you, this is serious business. Do you expect me to overlook obscene wealth you've piled up by cheating and fraud? Do you think I'll tolerate shady deals and shifty scheming? I'm tired of the violent rich bullying their way with bluffs and lies. I'm fed up. Beginning now, you're finished. You'll pay for your sins down to your last cent. No matter how much you get, it will never be enough. Hollow stomachs empty hearts. No matter how hard you work, you'll have nothing to show for it. Bankrupt lives, wasted souls. You'll plant grass, but never get a lawn. You'll make jelly, but never spread it on your bread. You'll press apples, but never drink the cider. You have lived by the standards of your king, Omri, the decadent lifestyle of the family of Ahab. Because you've slavishly followed their fashions, I'm forcing you into bankruptcy. Your way of life will be laughed at, a tasteless joke. Your lives will be derided as futile and fake. Wow. That is Micah 6. Wow. It's also Mad Men. <laughs> it's <laughs> Mad Men. It, it's <laughs> also... Send that over to Mad Men. It's also The Great Gatsby. Yes. You know, it, it, yes, it is. It's also it's very a, much... Um, yes, it is. The emptiness. And... Uh, I'll, I'll just do one more quick quote. I'll back it up. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night. That's a straight up rip off of the Bible because right. Poe was a literate man. And one by one dropped the revelers in the blood bedewed hall of their revel and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. There's no you can't run away. Yeah. You know, the, the, the myth of the American frontier, the, the great last myth of, of and the great myth of space, the great myth of, of a lot of early science fiction was you can run away. However fucked up and awful things get, there's a you can find a lifeboat out of there. You can go west or you can go up or you can get away from it. And now you can't. 
Um, space travel is too expensive. It, unless we have some amazing breakthrough in the basic laws of physics, no more than a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the human race will ever get off this planet. And so we're stuck here together on this slowly roasting planet with all of these tough decisions and a bunch of idiots who uh, really aren't with the program and the problem of coping with that of getting them to see that they're in the same lifeboat we're in is the existential problem that we sort of discuss every week in one way or another. So uh, it's going to be a long summer, Driftglass. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. And John Boehner opining that and asking out loud uh-huh. on this IRS thing, who's going to go to jail for this? Yeah. And my immediate thought, oh, John, you know, it's going to be some high-ranking Wall Street banker. Yeah. We're bastards. There, there's no— there's... Always pick on those guys. Yeah. It's a shame. It really is. Scapegoating. But... We're going to scapegoat some high-level banker. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Jamie Dimon. <laughs> Get off his back, man. Jail again. Oh, wait. <laughs> Don't judge him. <laughs> Lloyd Blankstein's well... doing God's work, honey. It's so sad. But it, it is. I mean, it, and this is. But it, and what I want to know is the guy that they fired. Yeah. Interim director. Interim director. Steve Miller of the Steve Miller Band. Not yeah. appoint him. Yeah. Wasn't that. <laughs> they blocked everything Obama's. I know. Every appointment Obama's made, including the EPA director. Well, and, and this is the oh, thing. Do you know who's spearheading blocking the EPA dire- director? Who? Guess who? Uh, is it, is it a congressman from? It's a senator. It's a senator from Louisiana. Ah, uh, let's see. Where's Where's diapers it? with hookers. Yeah, oh, that's that. I'm gonna have to narrow it down a little. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah. he lo- he loves all that oil in the Gulf. Yeah, he does. He wants to leave it there. Yeah, David Verry's spearheading, blocking any appointment to the EPA. All that is required is for the American people to en masse rise up and demand that this be this be stopped, which is the sort of hilarious answer to the question: shouldn't shouldn't someone do something about this? <laughs> yeah, and if yeah. you're waiting for the population en masse to get up and demand change. That's a as as they used to say on uh, Firefly. That's a long wait for a train that ain't coming. That will never happen. But there is a quote. This is this is the thing that kind of amuses me. You know the quote about um, history has only ever been changed by a small group of dedicated people. Yeah, yeah. That's true whether those dedicated people are evil or not. Yep, yep. And so a, that ten percent who don't want gun control passed are winning. Are winning because they're 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 willing to vote on that issue and that issue. They're willing to punish people mm-hmm. over that issue, and the, and they're the people who they put into office know it. Yeah, they put little tags on them like like you're tracking animals' mating habits. They put little NRA tags on their politicians and they track everything they do, and they can take away that person's office with a snap of a finger, and they know it. So. The fact that 90% of the people in this country want the government to work better and 90% of the people are – and an overwhelming majority want this and a large majority want gay rights and everyone thinks abortion on some level should be kept legal except for a small minority is all irrelevant because that sort of big fluffy majority is not composed of people who are hardcore activists willing to do whatever it takes to advance their agenda and willing to punish people who stand in their way. The 10%. Those are some dedicated motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are people who don't blink for months on end. They never get tired. They never go to sleep. They're willing to wake up in the morning, focused on one issue, pursue it all day long, go to church and pray over it, have their family work on it, and then get and go to bed and do the same thing the next day. 
And that's what it takes to change those kind of issues, whether you're working for good or evil. That that doesn't mean that we can't scream at the top of our lungs about the issues that we care about. Oh, though. It demands that we should scream. It at the demands top. that we should scream about them. And Absolutely. we should register people yeah. to vote and we should vote like crazy and we should run for office and we should, you know, primary people who are unfit and not, not up to our standards. And then well, the, but on, on that topic. Drift glass. Uh-huh. This on this coming whitewater summer that we're going yeah. to have, yeah. as as it's been called, and and just one scandal after another because the Republican House has nothing else to do except defund Obamacare for right. the thirty seventh time this week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it interesting that the Republican Party as a whole is much more excited about Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee than they are about any nominee potential nominee they have. Yeah. And everyone is more excited about Hillary Clinton as a nominee <laughs> than anyone else on the planet. They're not going to get their act together. They don't have to. Exactly. They don't have to. They don't have they, to. This is, and uh, mind you, some people on the left line up to help Republicans do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I'm not going to go down that road today and some other future podcast I will, but... The, well, the, your, your post about... The Bill Maher show was very good, by the yeah, way. Yeah, well, I thought it was a very balanced post. Yeah. And I, I, I and tried to it did to be... bring a lot of trolls to the yard. Man, they, they showed up <laughs> like... like 20 comments. Boom. So. <laughs> and the thing I've noticed, just as, as an aside when it comes to talking about people like Mr. Greenwald, which is I usually write a very specific critique of something that he said or did. Mm-hmm. And Almost without exception. I can't say without exception because some of the people who show up are very, very well spoken, very well, articulate. Even, even if they're defending Greenwald, a lot, yeah, that's fine. That's that's what de- really smart people. Absolutely. That's what debate is. And I did not mean to use the word troll. In no, the, no, 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 no. With a broad brush. Plenty no. of smart people show up. Plenty of people who are like, yeah, well, you know, he's Driftglass is kind of a dick on this issue, but he's, you know, I mean, they're nice. They they're engaged. Mm-hmm. It is a happy warrior kind of thing. Um, it, it's a. a, a family debate but the number of trolls who show up who will not engage on the subject i bring up here's and i and i really kind of i didn't it didn't mean as a trap but i did that post was here is my critique of what mr greenwald said specifically said here is why i find fault with this one thing he said and here is here is a a long history of him saying the opposite yes. of what he said. Yes. And, <laughs> and, but I welcome you to prove me wrong. I might be wrong. I might misunderstand. So please, if you're going to engage, just show me where I have, where the, the, where the break in this chain of logic is. And I'll acknowledge I'm wrong. I, uh, he beat the crap out of Bill Maher on, on the major issue. He did a great job. He toasted him and Bill Maher humiliated himself by being a well, jerk. Bill Maher's lazy. He's, he's lazy. He, he is he, lazy. Yeah. yeah. And he, he wants to just sort of toss out some red meat and snark about it. And then the show's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but on this other issue, I think I raised a perfectly valid criticism of Mr. Greenwald. And in most of the posts I've written, I haven't really written that many over the course of my entire blog. I used to write a lot of nice things about Glenn Greenwald, which he also never <laughs> mentioned or acknowledged. And nobody ever showed up to pat me on the head for that. So, but there are certain issues that I just disagree with him over. And I think he's wrong. I think he hurts his cause by being sort of over the top in in a lot of ways. And I I demonstrate here is where I think he's gone over the line. And here is what I think is unfair and really vicious in what he's doing. And and what do you think about that? 
well, you're relentless down in defense of Barack or Hitler and his militarism. That's not what I said, asshole. What I said was, here's a specific criticism of a specific thing this guy did. What do you hey, think? Hey, listen, Glenn Greenwald's already got someone to suck his dick. Yeah. So you just go away. I know what you really want to do. He's, tra- he's angling for some job at Washington Post. He must be because he's selling out the cause. And it is. No, that's not what we're and, talking about. And first of all, you know, dude, I've been I've been dating since I was 16. Yeah. And I've been writing since I was 20. And you cannot insult me by rejecting me. <laughs> I have gotten more rejection and more insults dating and writing than you will ever be able to pile up in my comment section. So don't even bother. Um, but if they're clever, I'll, I'll laugh at them. I thought the thing about um, Driftglass going, you know, but the liberals was, was very funny. That was really good. That, that was yeah. really clever. You listened to what I said and you really got me and that was really good. But the, um, the thing that, they, that these people have in common is that they're absolutely either incapable of reading what I write or they are completely beyond engaging on the on sort of the context and content of what I'm writing. It has to be, you're an awful, awful obot bastard. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And you look stupid and you make my point for me, but it's, it's, that's why the, uh, the, the whitewater summer getting back to the actual subject we're talking about is, is fascinating because watching, watching the scandal machine just running on fumes for five years yeah. and never going away. You know, never, ever disappearing, um, waiting for something to feed it, waiting for something to prove my preconceived notion that Barack Obama is a secret communist, something, something. And Hillary Clinton is a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then finally, ah, and and the way people latch on to it as manna from heaven is unseemly and predictable. Uh, But on on the other side of that, I know, you know, several people who just sort of threw up their hands and said, look, I spent... I blew the '90s defending Bill Clinton. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and he from, and we got what did I get from my trouble? But the Defense of Marriage Act and NAFTA. Yeah. Well, I got yeah. the Defense of Marriage Act and NAFTA and welfare reform and a bunch of other shit and hippie punching codified as a as a DLC strategy. But I also mm-hmm. got a person that I went to the wall for. Yeah. It turned out he was having an affair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the sort of like, yeah, but it was a fishing expedition and they had no business asking that question. He was trapped into it, you know, a grand jury testimony and blah, 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 blah. Nobody listens to that. No. But it's because he was guilty. He was guilty of this one stupid thing that should yeah. never have come up, should yeah. never been the subject of an investigation, should never been permitted. And the only reason it was, was the right wing was willing to destroy the concept of a credible media destroy the concept of fair government Mm -hmm. to get this son of a bitch Mm -hmm. because he had a d after his name that's the only reason and that machine is still pumping along going strong that is the machine if you're a liberal if you're a moderate liberal if you're left of center wherever you are on that spectrum that machine hates you Mm -hmm. and wants to destroy you and every time you Pick fights inside your own perimeter. That machine gets stronger. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying be aware that the consequences of your actions are that the Louis Gohmerts and Michelle Bachmans and the Koch brothers get stronger every time you gut someone on your own side. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. If, if you think it's worth it, then do it and justify it. But be aware that they never get tired. And they, and they never give each other awards all the time, too. For Yes, for they do. We want to congratulate Roger Ailes. 
Roger Ailes. Who had a birthday this week. He's, what, 170 now? Don't care. Don't care. He's he's going to receive the 2013 Bradley Prize, described by Media Matters as a major award given to innovative thinkers. Uh-huh. The, Brad, the CEO of the Bradley Foundation called Roger Ailes a visionary of American journalism. Yeah. And he gets $250,000. Uh-huh. Cast winners include John Bolton, Bill Crystal, Paul Gigot, and Charles Krauthammer. Wow. Although I don't believe I'm allowed to listen to Media Matters anymore since I was told by a certain prominent guardian of civil liberty that they are just a front for the Obot army. I heard that. Yeah. So, you know. I also heard that they're a far left site. But where did I hear that? Oh, Bill O'Reilly told me that. It's weird. They are <laughs> uh, they, they're distributing talking points. Yeah. To defend the DOJ, the Department of Justice's contemptible attack on AP, thus being, you know, true Obot, you know, drones, as opposed to saying, yeah, here's some other points on the other side of the argument that we would like to have the argument. And the other people who attack it are is an obscure gentleman named Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. Who has been fighting the media matters authoritarian behemoth from obscurity for years. And finally, finally, someone on the left weighs in to lend him a hand. So tip of the hat to uh, Bill O and Glenn Greenwald. Uh, well, and tip of the hat to NewsHounds, who uh, pointed out this wonderful award that Roger Ailes won with his $250,000 stipend. Yeah. Okay. He earned that, honey. How, <laughs> how, how, how many tanks of gas and how many bunches of bananas could we buy for... <laughs> $250,000? We could run for years. Maybe, uh, I, maybe I could buy genetic testing for my entire family for maybe you can hear, cancer. Yeah, like Oprah. <laughs> you get a genetic test and you, you get, get genetic, genetic testing. Test. You get genetic testing. And remember, right. Roger and Roger Ailes is a really good example of the kind of the persistence of some people on the right. Roger Ailes is an evil person. Well, and let's be clear about where Roger Ailes came from. He came from the Nixon White House. Yeah. And, and so ha- the current meme about this is worse than Watergate and this is worse than Watergate and nobody died during Watergate and blah, 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 has to do with resurrecting Nixon's reputation yeah. as being not as bad as the liberals. We need him to be we not as bad as the liberals. Watergate and make it just this little thing that wasn't as big deal because nobody died. And if Someone we can died during Watergate, <laughs> a lot of things died during Watergate. Yeah. And a lot of careers were born. <sighs> Robert Bork's career was born, among others. Um, and it, so it's very important that we that Barack Obama be worse than Bush. Yep. Because then all of our adjectives can, you know, we can try out all of our favorite adjectives. And worse than Nixon. Worse, worse than Watergate. Ever. Worse than Watergate. And, you know, yep. people died. Um, and remember that Roger Ailes didn't just come from Nixon's White House. And this is, again, an example of the incredible sort of focus and persistence and, frankly, the amount of money that the right's willing to pour into this. Fox News started off as a glimmer in Roger Ailes' eye mm-hmm. in the Nixon White House where he he was proposing doing something called Republican Re- News, yeah. Republican TV. Yeah. Because, you know, the liberal media will never get your message out, Mr. President. So we need to set up our own television network called Republican TV or I'm not sure what the acronym was, but GOP TV or something like that. And that idea was shot down apparently in the 60s and 70s. But he ridiculous. He, he held on to it. Yeah. Because he's smart enough to know that if you want to – take down a country the size of America. You need to brainwash a substantial number of its active voter base to do the shit you want them to do. And they just worked and worked and worked until they got what they wanted. Now we're in a place where a a minority party 
can hold the country hostage indefinitely. And that's not what I thought I'd be in 2013. Their ratings are just amazing. They are. They just are. Uh, All right. Tell me about your time at art school. Yes. Once upon a time. (laughs) You know, this is one of those things where nobody cares about how writers come up with ideas. But the back and forth over the IRS, it, it appeared to me upon reading it, having been in organizations was not about a sinister plot on behalf of um, schemers in the White House to plot against conservative groups. Um, It had to do with a whole bunch of people suddenly deciding they're going to go become 501c3s or 501c4s out of nowhere. uh, A lot of the groups were ones that had Barack Obama as a communist in their letterhead and were all about we need to end the unfair taxation in this country. So they appeared to be explicitly political. Well, yeah. And and if I were the IRS, frankly, and I saw that a whole lot of groups based on taxed enough already were asking for tax exemption. Yeah. I'd give them special scrutiny, too. Yeah. yeah. And they all should. They all sort of showed up on a Tuesday. They did. Um, and and in a, at a time when staff was being cut. Yeah. And to no, me, this seemed like a customer service problem. Nobody audited them. Nobody yeah, raked yeah. them over the coals. Nobody threatened to put them in jail. Nobody threatened to take their homes away. This was about a delay in the process of getting approval well, for your taxes. bureaucracy having to deal with a huge influx of paperwork at a time of low staffing. And people— And we've and, both been in jobs where that's happened. Oh, yeah. And, well, and that's what brought me back to art school because yeah, yeah. I was— I managed a very, very tiny staff of full-time professionals and a very large staff of student workers. And a lot of sort of the day-to-day turnkey operation of sort of getting things up and down and running and clean and stuff had to be done by student workers who were – a lot of them were really good. A lot of them were really fun to be around, artist types, just a blast to talk to and sort of kept me young, blue gal. And there was a a, a certain percentage, perhaps a third – uh, who were uh, high a lot or slept in a lot or – and these are really part-time jobs. These are 10 hours a week, 15 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So sort of arranging all of these little pieces into a schedule so that the whole place could run smoothly was always a challenge. And I spent a lot of my time breaking up fights and negotiating negotiating chaos because there was no way to actually make the place run as as I would run it if it were an actual IT department or an actual – uh, uh, programming department or anything else, it was controlled chaos. And this, so, and this was, a, so this was a case where a lot of faculty members were directly transplanted from the sixties. They had never left. They had come to that art school as students in the sixties or as young faculty had never left. This was a very left leaning school. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was an art school and this was art during the time of Jesse Helms. This was art during the time of, um, uh, the proper way to display an American flag at the Art Institute of Chicago. This is art when when the memory of a, a painting called Mirth and Girth, which was about the late Harold Washington dressed up in panties and a bra, had been confiscated by aldermen who thought it was disrespectful. Uh, this was also you know, right on the heels and right after uh, the artistic community had been, as we said earlier in the podcast, inflamed by the fact that uh, – gay a plague in the gay community was being treated as as if it didn't exist and people really had to beat on the walls of the establishment to get people to pay attention to their issues this was a time when jesse helms walked the earth and we and uh and tipper gore was putting stickers on albums and so there was a a lot of people who were extremely sensitive about the subject of artistic freedom 
and felt even though a, a lot of that was bullshit in my opinion and I speak as sort of as an artist myself a lot of it was provocation for the sake of provocation and shock for the sake of shock um, how can I piss off people as much as possible so that I can get attention from people protesting my art so that I could then become famous not saying all of it was but there was certain there was a certain element of the people at least I knew who were all about running all over the earth trying to find an eye they could poke even if it wasn't present how can I how can I find someone to outrage so that I could be an outrageous artist not saying all of them just saying that happened but into this tinderbox uh, one student worker decided that uh, at this art school that uh, he decided all on his own that he would not permit people to look at nude pictures on the internet and made up a rule at an art school at an art school oh okay um and put up a sign put up a lot of signs saying basically if 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 we catch you looking at naughty pictures on the internet um out you go what was wait a minute was he a student yeah he was a student yep. like he was a work study or whatever yep yep 14 hours and so a week, he put a he put a sign up in the computer lab saying no porno on the he put computers? a sign up in all the computer labs <laughs> saying, you know, as many as many as were within my reach is within my domain because he decided that was just inappropriate. Now, now, let me be clear. This was also the time of, you know, uh, war driving, looking with pretzel, with Pringles pretzel cans, looking for Wi-Fi hotspots because yeah, yeah. wireless was almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a time when dial up modems were very common and high speed internet access was a was incredibly rare or relatively rare outside of large institutions and large businesses and so having a uh, access to essentially public computer private public uh, uh, computer labs with fast internet access was a fairly rare thing and it was a gift from the porn gods <laughs> to people who were in their you know guys mostly yeah. who were in their 20s yeah. Yeah. who yeah. like could suddenly look at all the dirty pictures they wanted now, well, now, and I, and I can see the point of somebody who's actually trying to get work done or on yeah. a deadline to do a project. Absolutely, and they come in, and all that's going on is fapping to porn yeah. on the on the well, university's computer system, and, and you're actually trying to get work done. And here's the point: the work you get done might very well be downloading lots of nude men and putting them into a collage. Okay, so that could be your art project. Could I, and be I'm, all right. And I don't want to litigate your artistic parameters in the middle of a lab on a work day. Right. Because okay. there's no way I'm going to win that argument ever. And besides, you have a good point. So everybody had a good point. I, I don't want, especially during midterms and finals, right. um, sitting at a computer, I don't want to be grossed out Everybody or running out a peep show. Yeah. Or offended <laughs> when by people are trying to get to, to their homework. Yeah. But you know how to solve that? You solve that with discretion. You solve that yeah. with tact. You solve that with diplomacy. You solve that with taking a person aside. You solve that with putting up a little sort of blocking between the you, you solve that by wiping out caches there's lots of things you do to solve that problem mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't drop a big fucking rock in the middle of a giant controversy to make the right. maximum right. number of waves it doesn't so, it could be about the individual students use of equipment yeah. rather than the first amendment because yeah. <laughs> trust me the individual, certain individual students' personal hygiene was much more offensive to people. Yeah. Uh, and I, I tossed people for smelling bad. Yeah, yeah. Come back when you've had a bath. And I'm not talking about self-expression. I'm talking about I can smell you down the hall. Mm-hmm. And you smell like rot. And if you don't know that, you've got to leave. Yeah. Uh, but this was, this was, you know, I had 99 problems. I didn't need this to be <laughs> one of them. I had uh, people dropping cats in my office 
student workers that shit all over the place. You oh, know, yeah. I, you said is, that in your post, yeah. that you had, you had diarrhea cats in sharding, your lab. Sharding cats being, you know, <laughs> student workers didn't have a place to put their cat, put him in my office, uh, and then left, and I come back to a cat that has projectile sharded all over my <laughs> desk. So these were the problems that I was much more intimately involved with. I didn't need to be the center of a massive art controversy where the man and, – and again, this is a place with a student newspaper that's always looking for the next controversial yeah. Yeah. person who who is and – I, and I, so I get to be for a day or two junior Jesse Helms. Yeah. And, I, and I've got a faculty who think I'm a Nazi anyway because I don't let them do you – know, I don't let them make pizza in the disk drive. You know, I don't let them. I don't let them use my computers as beverage carts because yeah. you know what? When you destroy a computer, you destroy it for the next three classes in a row, at least. So I laid down some very minimal rules, and a lot of faculty who had never been, t- never been reined in at all, hated me for it for about three semesters. And then th- it dawned on them that everything ran a lot better. They got their work done a lot quicker. It wasn't intrusive. Oh, this is actually a good idea. You know, being clean and respectful of the commons, which is basically all I was doing. Is, a, is it actually a useful exercise, and it sort of appealed to their communal spirit. But anyway, this one student decided to arbitrarily decide nobody can look at nudie pictures on the computer no more, and that caused a bit of a firestorm. But that wasn't because there was a sinister plot at the top to limit personal freedom and deny artists access to the human form. <laughs> it was because some dumbass in the middle of the, of the organization decided to take it upon themselves to do something that they thought was right. And, 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 and to do a shortcut. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that is exactly what it looks like happened at the IRS. Some, yeah. And not, not that what they did was right. No, no. But, but it, was, it doesn't go high enough, first of all, to be a problem no. for the White House. No. And part of the problem is we all now have, and I think even the media, to a, to a certain extent, has Benghazi fatigue. Yes. <laughs> so what's the controversy again? What's the scandal again? And well, that was the one thing I think Bill Maher did right last Friday night, yeah. which is he just kept asking, yeah, but what's the scandal? Yeah, but what's the scandal? And your image in your post of <laughs> the guy from uh, – where, where was he from? The conservative on that panel? Was he from National Review? Oh, yeah. 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 You had him flopping like a trout. Yeah. On a, <laughs> on, a on a bridge somewhere. On a tarmac. Yeah. He was he oh, just yeah, hit. Tarm- blah, blah, I got blah, nothing. Blah. <laughs> I got nothing. And he had nothing. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's just Benghazi is terrible. Yeah, it's it's bad. And he was saved by an intercession by Glenn Greenwald, who made a good point, but then proceeded to make a really bad point because it, it, it was imperative to him that the through line be on every issue, Barack Obama is just as bad as George Bush, as bad or worse, as bad or worse, as bad or worse. And therefore, it he had to reduce uh, in his in his sal- saving of this libertarian who's making a fool of himself, that Benghazi is is just the same as as those Democrats who who when when George Bush was president kept insisting this is the worst scandal ever, this is the worst thing that ever happened ever. And then I just went back to Glenn's own books and said, well, here's a whole lot of quotes from Glenn Greenwald when he was selling books based on the fact that what George Bush was doing was the worst ever. So no, it was a false comparison and. I know it because Glenn Greenwald told me it was a false comparison in this book, this book, this book, and this book. So by drawing this completely false comparison between Obama and Bush on this issue, Glenn is lying to you. 
And that's when his trolls showed up and said, how dare you, you lying son of a bitch, you sellout fucker. Well, okay. Well, and then we have the AP story, which is well, the, the last of the three. Well, and, I just, I just, oh, I just want to remind everyone that this reminded me during doing the research for this and talking to you about that, of what the '90s were like. Yeah, well, and, and, that, and that's my point about the AP story. Yeah, yeah. Which is apparently Obama didn't found out the same time everyone else did that the Justice Department was doing this, uh-huh. and so there's no way Obama can win on this. No. Either he's he incompetent. Was is incompetent and not zealous in prosecuting leakers. Right. <laughs> Or, Which everyone, inclu- every Republican in the Senate had said he should go after these leakers yes. and execute them. I mean, yes. Dianne Feinstein was her hair was on fire about the leaks, these national security leaks. Yeah, the, well, the, and the specific one there was this national was a CIA asset inside right. of an Al Qaeda cell exactly. that had exactly. leaked. Which is exactly you know. so, and and let's be clear, it is the press's job to report those things. Absolutely, if and they it's can. The Senate's job to to pass legislation that navigates this area, and then the courts to decide what is legal and what is not, and whether whether it's constitutional, what it isn't. The Congress is totally unwilling to do their job in passing anything that's going to protect the media from the government. They just are. That's how much the. The conversation. Chuck Schumer wants to introduce this Media Shield Act. Yeah. You know, that will protect members of the media from being spied upon, which totally, you know, I totally get that. Uh-huh. But Republicans have killed that bill already. Yeah, so... but, you know, the blue gal, Obama could, whoever it was in the Justice Department who did this, could have not done it anyway. It just yeah. been better than the law, which is asking more of a politician than I think. Oh, now, you know, but now Obama's too passive. So there's no winning. This is whitewater summer. It's- well, and it reminds me of that we used to have punch out fights in the 90s over art. Mm-hmm. And we used to have punching punch out fights about freedom of the press. And then well, we were talking about Robert Maplethorpe and yeah. and the artist who did Piss Christ, the yeah. little image statue of Jimis, Jesus in a vat of human urine, which and you the, know, and, and, is obviously designed to upset a certain category of people. As much as possible. As much as possible. And then we argued over public funding of art and where that's right and wrong and is it incompetent or is it irrelevant? And, and as I said to funding... you at lunch yesterday, you know, part yeah. of this was let's get after these awful homosexual artists in New York City rather than talk about AIDS. Let's yeah. talk about them as perverts. Exactly. And then we get into the whole question of whether these homo pervert New Yorkers <laughs> should be going to Jesse Helms. Yes. To, you know, open their hand for money. For public money. For public money. Yeah. And that was always my parents' argument. Who we were both artists, let's be They're clear. Both, both starving both artists. artists. Both starving artists. Both 2D, you know, printmaking and silk screening and oil painting and collage and made their living teaching that sort of thing. And so, but my dad always used to say, well, you know, I can see where an opera company might need some funding to get off the ground. And yeah. I can see why it's important to give children access to art events. Absolutely. Yep. Make sure that they have admission to, you know, we should be funding free admission days at museums and so forth so that low income people can have access. That's always very important. But uh, the idea that someone making, you know, a sculpture in Soho needs federal money to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not to get all Godwin's law, ah. but. My dad showed me a picture of Hitler touring the art museum in, you know, in Germany. 
and determining what was good German art and what was bad, you know, what, what didn't serve the fatherland. Yeah. And burning art and destroying paintings that were seen as degenerate yeah. by the, the Führer and by the When you own the museums, you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and separation of state and art. Yes. <laughs> Is every bit as important. Is every bit, you know, is every bit as important as what? And I Christian state. Yeah, you know, it it it's expression. It's personal expression, and fun, federal funding isn't some sort of right that artists should have. I really feel yeah. that way. Well, and this is where bloggers and artists have another area of overlap, which is, you know, after eight years of doing this, no, you're not going to make a living at this. <laughs> I'm still a, I'm still a single shingle blogger. I don't take any ad money. I don't care what my little troll friends say, and I I love them all. Um, I'm not angling for a big promotion into the uh, into the Sometimes inside. You get depressed and angry and whine on your blog about why you're not working for some big publication. I, I do that. <laughs> I do, but I don't write to angle myself in on that. No. I write what uh, I write. You, you aren't submitting to Atlantic Monthly. No. I mean. No, I, I have I've written to lots of newspapers and magazines over the years and said I would be a good addition to your staff and I have never heard back or I've heard back once or twice and but nothing but I don't edit my writing to make it easier for me to get an establishment job. Right. I don't limit what I, I write what I enjoy I write what I like I write what I pleases me but the thing that I'm nostalgic for and you and I were also talking and I just looked it up very quickly on IMDb uh, it was. The episode Strike a Statue from Naked City in 1962. Hmm. And it was George C. Scott, a renowned sculptor immortalizing a moment in time of a reviled European dictator, is warned to stop working on the project. There's this, the whole plot revolves around stopping this guy who now lives in New York from making a statue out of a dictator because then it will immortalize him. It will freeze him in time and make him great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how important art was. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the last time we had in this country a serious argument over art, a serious front page headline, Maplethorpe, piss Christ. Mm -hmm. How do how do you display an American flag as if art mattered? And I think, I, frankly, I think 9-11 had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It had a lot to do with, yeah, while you're over there bitching about uh, Christ in a toilet bowl, mm -hmm. um, a bunch of buildings got blown up over here. Mm-hmm. So maybe you should quit fiddling around with whatever bullshit you're worried about and, you know, get with the team. Um, I think that's uh, I think that's unfair. I think artists have to think for themselves and act for themselves. But I think the global war on terror, the eternal war, the forever war, whatever you want to call it, sucked pretty much all the oxygen out of the room to be confrontational over things that are essentially existential, but not personally threatening. Um, plus, we had cable TV. Yeah, I was going to say, cable TV and the internet give people options to bifurcate themselves into, yeah. and I'm using that word wrong, but allow themselves yeah. to just absorb media that however they want gears to their their desire. Yeah, and there's no more public square mm -hmm. where the great work is unveiled that everyone will either react like the Picasso in Chicago, react in horror or delight or whatever. That just doesn't exist anymore. At least I mean, we we did have an argument about Big Bird in the last election. We did. <laughs> so there is but, that. And that's where we've gone. We're now arguing yeah. over Sesame Street and, yeah. and Big yeah. Bird. Well, because of federal funding, there are people on the left who are just as mad about the fact that PBS has become corporatized. Yeah. And and that's the other part of it is that so much of the quote unquote federal funding, it's it's no longer, nothing is funded anymore by us. No. It's funded <laughs> by corporations. Yeah. 
So when you when you build a stadium, it's not built with taxpayer money. You get you get it naming rights. You well, sell naming rights. It the taxpayers and then you and then you get the taxpayers to pay for it with tax breaks for the people right. that built it. Yeah. Right. right. I know. But it's public it's public art and public stadia and public those things are you know a relic of a bygone age. And I miss those. I miss that age. I miss having oh, arguments and, and about. And when the courts decided that malls were not public space. Yeah. That going to a mall. You couldn't leaflet inside a mall because that was private property. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, that just stamped out the public square as a place where people could share ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, tank the economy a few times, and suddenly that makes the- that makes people when when people are trying to eat their housing subsidies. Uh huh. <laughs> then all of a sudden, they're not really worried about art anymore. Yeah. yeah, they're not really they can't really get captivated by an argument over uh-huh. burning a flag. Yeah. Yeah. Or is is it a flag and are we burning it? In that? And what does a flag mean and is it desecrated or not? Um, you can still outrage people, but knocking down the World Trade Center pretty much sets a bar for um, shocking and outraging people in a real sense that made a lot of the shock and outrage over people, you know, pouring honey on themselves and covering themselves with shit um, look stupid and pretentious. And uh, but I miss those days. I miss being able to have those conversations and have them seriously and in public. Um, and I hope they come again. I wanted to point out something that was on Wonk blog uh-huh. about these this 37 vote against Obamacare. Yeah. And this the woman that wrote this article, Sarah, Sarah Cliff. Yeah. Sarah Cliff says that this vote actually matters in this way. A poll shows that 42 percent of the American people are unaware of the status of the current health care law. Yeah. Yep. So when you keep on challenging it this way in what you think is a totally meaningless way, you're actually planting all kinds of seeds to get people not to access it, to get people not to ask about it. I mean, this poll that was done by the Kaiser Family Foundation, 12% of the people polled are convinced that it's been repealed by Congress. And 7% say it was overturned by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this goes back to where is Benghazi? Can yeah. you answer that question? There are idiots in this country. However. It's in Cuba. Part of, part of it is there is a constant drive to misinform. Yeah. By some very powerful people. Mm-hmm. If we can fight that on the ground and get people to apply for this you know, Medicare expansion and Medicaid expansion and have that's going to take a lot of work to get the information out to people that you are eligible for health care. And in red states, you will not get that information unless no. there is someone outside that state willing to push. Yeah. Well, freedom writers, you know, yeah. Obamacare freedom writers willing to willing to drive down to Alabama drive down to wherever. Yeah. And tell yeah. them that, no, you, you, you get to have health care. You get to have health care. Yeah. All right. Every week we post to our Facebook page and website an Internet Kitty sent in by you, the listeners. This week's Internet Kitty is Sophie. I'm convinced that Sophie watched too much C-SPAN 3 and her eyes crossed. (laughs) (laughs) No more House of Representatives hearings for you, Sophie. That's it. We're cutting you off. (laughs) She's beautiful. And you can send your Internet Kitty to us at our email address, proleftpodcast at gmail.com, where you can also write to both of us. Feel free to write us. We love hearing from you. Be aware that if you write us at any of our addresses, including if you send a stump the chump nine mil- billion names for pod question uh-huh. to Driftglass at send that to me at Mrs. Driftglass 
at gmail.com. Yes. Whatever you do, yes. we reserve the right to read your email. <laughs> and, and if you do accidentally send it to both of us, I don't read them. Yeah, he's pretty good about I, that. I, he, he's pretty good about just delete. Yeah, so... And and I'm pretty good about shouting out to him. Oh, by the way, that one, don't open that. Why, is it a present? Oh, is it for me? Is it a present? No, no, you don't get to read it. But feel free to rise. We love hearing from you, and we'd love to hear from you. And we reserve the right to read your email or U.S. Postal Service. Go, Postal Union! Letter on the air, unless you say otherwise. So, Blue Gal, I got a question for you. Yes? How are those Internet kitties doing this week? Well, the Internet kitties have informed me that cicadas taste just like chicken. Let's think about living. Let's think about loving. Let's think about the hooping and the hopping and the bopping and the loving, lovey dovey. Let's forget about the whining and the crying, and the shooting and the dying, and the fellow with a switchblade knife. Let's think about living. Let's think about life. The Professionalized Podcast is recorded under a Creative Commons license. Copyright 2013. Drift Glass Blue Gal Podcast. Nine billion names for pod. Can you say that in a kind of science fiction-y voice? Nine, uh, nine, nine, nine. I'll echo it. You just say it in your deep voice. And now it's time for the nine billion names of pod. You like that? Yep, like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, or, if you prefer, mm-hmm. and now it's time for the nine, 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 billion, 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 names, names, names of, of, of pod, pod, pod. That was really perfect. <laughs> I, I do try, baby. All right. Well, here I should have I should have a cigarette now, don't you? Think? <laughs> all right, hit me with the, your best shot, baby. Come on, bring well, it on. Well, first of all, this is a we have a couple of questions about Orson Scott Card. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Some are uh, the second letter has some Orson Scott Card trivia questions. The first one is more uh, esoteric and asking for our advice. And I uh-huh. think you read this one. The one that asked for advice was sent to both of us. But all right. It had a fascinating question in it, and I thought we should talk about it. A better Hello. hygiene and a change of wardrobe. Yeah. This, is from, this is from Dave in Ann Arbor. Thank Hello, you Dave. for writing, Dave. Hello, Driftglass and Blue Gal. I have been listening to your podcast for a little over a year now, and I am a big fan. I credit you guys with breaking me of the both sides do it mentality. <gasps> Wonderful. You guys talk the way I wish I had the balls to talk to people who, that are my friends and family. Oh, Anyway, here is my dilemma. I heard you guys speak of the Ender's Game trailer last week, and it was something I have been dwelling on for a long time. Ender's Game is probably the book I have read most in my life. I was 13 or 14 when I first read it, and I have loved it ever since. I have always wondered how a movie could be made and just how the battle school on the screen would compare to what is in my mind. Now to see it is just about to come out got me very excited. While still a huge science fiction fan, hero protagonist has since replaced Ender as my favorite character. I had kind of forgot about Ender's Game, and to a larger extent, Orson Scott Card. I knew Card was a Mormon, which isn't a big deal to me, but I was a little disappointed in what I have been reading regarding his thoughts on gay marriage and homosexuality and other various right-leaning views. My question is, Do you guys ever have a hard time separating the work that someone does with the person they are? Ooh. I think I really want to see the movie. Uh But I'm not sure if supporting someone with the views they have is something I am completely okay with. Okay. Anyway, thanks for the great podcast. I'm hoping to support you in whatever way I can very soon, hopefully with a donation later this week. Well, thanks, Dave. Regardless of what works out with you financially, we are very glad to have you on board and, and glad for your letter. 
And I did write back to Dave uh, very briefly and thanked him for the question. And I feel that it's perfectly okay to see the movie and read the book. Uh, you told me one time that Card had kind of lost it in his career at some point, and some be- some of the best writers out there have mental health issues of one kind or another. So yeah. uh, if his disease presented as whacked out libertarianism, then yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- he this... wrote a good book once anyway, yeah. or maybe yeah. two, you know, I mean. Yeah. Well, and, and read it in that context, yeah. too, if, if that helps. But. Toulouse-Lautrec, I think, said, or was it DeForest Kelly? I don't remember. Toulouse-Lautrec said something about never meet your heroes. Yeah, yeah. Because they'll, always, they'll never measure up. Yep. Ironic for Toulouse-Lautrec, but mm-hmm. um, that they'll never be who you thought they were. And every, every writer I know, every writer I know who started out as a fan has a story of meeting that great big author that they had, they thought was, you know, seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. And uh, turned out they were just an ordinary person, and some yeah. of them were just awful. And some I them... did. I shook hands with Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted mm-hmm. Kennedy. Yeah, I, he's he's, an, he's a guy. I mean, yeah. he's just a human being. So yeah, you you have to well, and, kind of be careful of and, how, how high a pedestal you put some people on. And, and just a human being is is a step up for some authors. <laughs> um, some of the ones who are you know who. who who, who write really brilliantly and, and incisively about courage and human endeavor are cowards or completely socially um, yeah, yeah. impossible to be They're around. so Aspie, they cannot yeah. bathe pro- appropriately. No. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, one of my favorite writers is was an inveterate alcoholic and uh, occasional drug user who married his 13-year-old cousin Yeah, named Edgar Allan Poe. And, and wasn't it uh, someone was saying something about uh, Beethoven in that regard that later in his career when he went deaf and walked around the streets and really looked like just this unwashed homeless person who yeah. people would give free food to and yeah. he'd go and sit down. He had no money and he'd go sit down in the pub and they'd give him a sandwich and a beer and he'd talk to himself and had a slate around his neck if he needed something. <laughs> but yeah, no one wanted to sit too closely to him because he was just nuts you know so i think it was dostoevsky although don't don't pin me down 100 percent. who was a pederast mm-hmm. um and just you go through the list of russian novelists and you know, tolstoy had was a pretty virtuous guy as i recall but they all had like really really deep amazing character flaws most of the uh french writer and, and this is not casting aspersions this is just there's there's something there's some trade-off that a lot of artists make, they don't make yeah. it. It's thrust upon them Yeah. that in exchange for being able to, you know, to see the stars with your bare, with your bare eyes, you're going to be a complete malfunctioning human being at yeah. this other level. So I have that, no, that goes remarkably close to home drift. <laughs> yeah. oh, me too. I mean, absolutely. Me too. In all the novels I will never write, uh, they're incredibly, they're incredibly not me. Um, and also there's just sort of, uh, um, more pedestrian, Examples of people who write. Uh, the first story I ever published in my entire life uh, was about a character that is about as far away from me as you can possibly be mm-hmm. in terms of gender, where they live, lived experience, ethnic background. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had to submit it under a pseudonym because, you know, my civilian name, nobody would have ever bought it. And my own mind, weren't they surprised when I showed up for the reading? Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't the person who was in the story. Well, and I but, told the story on the podcast before when my mother did her master's show in painting at uh, Kent State University and she painted African-American faces as Mm -hmm. portraits 
Yeah. And some reviewer in the school paper wrote that she was a credit to her race. And this was in the early 60s when you could write such things. But, you know, she was a credit to her race. And how how wonderful it was that we had Negro painters. (laughs) You know, that's the that's the kind of language that was used. And of course, here here walks in this little five foot white girl (laughs) who had painted really beautifully and with great emotion Mm -hmm. the experience of these African-American characters that she had invented, really. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's, well, uh, being an add, artist is difficult. And <laughs> let, me, let me add two exceptions. It, yeah. Being an artist is always difficult. Two exceptions would be when I wrote the, this first story I wrote, I'm still very proud of because it was it's an epistolary account. It's a first-person account of someone I have no business being. And But I, I vetted it like crazy through people I know who had that background because mm-hmm. I didn't want to walk into the signing and the reading and et cetera, et cetera, um, having written something that was offensive or caricaturish or otherwise, you know, cartoonish and mm-hmm. insulting because I, I, there's a thing that writers have occasionally called character possession, which is where the character just takes over. Mm-hmm. If you're very, very lucky that happens to you when you write, the, you just, you're just taking dictation from this person who suddenly inhabits your head. Um, but the, the second exception, so the first exception is if you ever try to do that, Try to make sure that you know what you're talking about by by talking to people and getting their honest feedback about that lived experience. Mm-hmm. And the second is if you're writing polemically, if you're writing message fiction, then you really have to sort of walk the talk a little bit more than just pure fiction. If you're writing libertarian fiction, if you're writing, let's say, oh, I don't know, Atlas Shrugged, which is science fiction. It's really bad science fiction, but it's full of inventions that don't exist and death rays and cloaks of invisibility and, and miraculous engines that pull energy out of the air. It's, it is science fiction, Mm -hmm. but it is purely political. It's a political tract, um, disguised as science fiction. And if you're going to write libertarian fiction, you really shouldn't be spending the rest of your, you know, declining years taking a social security and Medicare and living off of the largesse of others. It tends to undercut your message, so that's the only exception I'd make. If you're writing a really, if you're writing a political angle, you got unless you're like Heinlein, who wrote enough about marriage and various types of government that he always said, "Look, this is just a story. It's different than every other story I wrote. I'm taking no responsibility for it. When I write about politics, you'll know it because I'll I'll say here's a book on politics. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, that's good. that's the long answer to your very good question, Dave. And now we have another question about Orson Scott Card. And this is by a gentleman who calls himself Geek, G-E-A-H-K. So hello, Geek. He's in Portland, Oregon. And he says, I have wanted Asterisk Glass for a long while to comment on Orson Scott Card, Mm -hmm. perhaps extensively because he is profoundly confusing to me. On one hand, uh, OSC has made a profession out of carefully studying other cultures and portraying them in his stories with complex and human motivations. Uh The Ender's Game series is all about working together despite cultural divides. He's written extensively from the point of view of non-white characters and non-Christian characters. From his books, I get the sense he's a very open and thoughtful person. However, I then discovered his opinion pieces, which Ah. he posts on his website. And it's like an entirely different person. He exhibits all the crazed paranoia and T-Billy xenophobia of the Drudge Report. Many of his op-eds read more like they were written by Alex Jones. Huh. Yeah. So uh, he said, I could ask you the, the stump the chump I'm lobbying to have it renamed Too Swift for Drift. 
Uh-huh. Question is, what living science fiction author has a full-blown case of Obama derangement syndrome? Ah. And he already gave it away. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here are his Ender's Game trivia questions. He has two. Well, let me and let me just say, if you want to see someone who's gone completely off the deep end, who's a very good writer, mm-hmm. David Mamet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has really just sort of fallen and, down the rabbit hole. And David Mamet is someone who, before he fell down the rabbit hole, wrote extensively about movie directors and autism and uh, really admitted that to be a movie director, you have to have a certain amount of wiring that's different from other people. And he, he really diagnosed himself as having Asperger's and said in order to be a good movie director, you have to have visual thinking, obsessive interest that then ends and changes. And you can, it works perfectly for movie directors because the yeah. project takes two years. You can obsess about it, work on it 24-7, and then you move on to the next thing. Yeah. And once it's you latch on, once the thing you obsessively latch on to is a conspiracy or particularly yeah, yeah. bizarre worldview – that is uh, perhaps a fact challenged. You don't have, if you don't have the social skills to recognize what you're going to look like to other people. <laughs> and that's the other thing about movie directors is they can be antisocial bastards to everyone yeah. around them. And that's, and it, everyone thinks, it, Oh, he's just brilliant. You know, <laughs> when, I, when I was at the art school, uh, <laughs> uh, one of the things, and this is, this is, this is a, a common conceit of youth and youth mm-hmm. is a crime for which we were all guilty. Mm-hmm. I did exactly the same thing. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But the learning all the wrong lessons from art, yeah. from artists, which mm-hmm. is, oh, so I have to be drunk or use drugs to – no, no. <laughs> yeah. The person you're referring to was a genius yeah. who used – who self-medicated because mm-hmm. their brain was running eight times faster yeah. than normal. And actually doing coke slowed him down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we, know, let, we know of people in history like sleep. that. <laughs> or if you're – um. Yeah. If you're uh, uh, if you're uh, if you are a great artist and a bastard, you get to get away with being a bastard. Yeah. If if you but, have a reputation as being great as well, yeah. yeah. You, you get to get away with you. People cut you some slack, but don't let the cart pull the horse. Um, being a diffident, smirking asshole doesn't make you an artist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go into your history drift no. on that. All right. Here are his here are his trivia questions about Ender's Game. Yes. Where did Bean hide to escape from being killed when he was one years old? One year old. I hint he was very small for his age. Um, I'm going to say in a crib, but I, I it's been a good twenty years since I read Ender's Game. And I, it, it, it made it read it again it, this summer. I think. It, oh, I know we will. The kid and I are going to read it. Yeah. yeah. It made a generic impression on me, but I can't remember details. So. Uh, being hid inside a toilet tank. Oh. The lab he was raised in was to be raided, and his 22 other siblings were all preemptively exterminated by the Volescu. Uh, by Volescu, who's the scientist, apparently. Sorry, these are, might be spoilers. You never know for the movie, but. Well, I'm, I, Thinking a lot of people will have read a book before they see the movie. In what city did Bean grow up in and how? Portland. <laughs> he grew up in, oh, it's in Holland. Uh, and he, it was in Rotterdam. Uh-huh. And he was a part of Polk's crew in Rotterdam. Uh, Geek ends his letter with, thanks so much for your podcast. I am nerdy and totally enjoy the discussion of my two favorite things, science fiction and politics. Thank you, uh, Geek. Our pleasure, Geek. And now, I must uh, be He going. must run. 
Goodbye. Later, darling. Bye.